Hello and welcome to another episode of Lighting the Shadows. I'm your host, Kristen Lowerson, and I've been truly looking forward to sharing today's episode with you guys. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Cameron Aldridge on the topic of shame. And it's kind of funny because Cameron knows my whole family really well. He was really good friends with my sister and was a presidential ambassador with my husband and my sister during their undergrad. And he talked with, he's talked with my parents, my brothers, and even my grandparents before. But what's so funny is I haven't really talked with him before until this interview. So it was really great to get to know Cameron and talk with someone, especially that knew my sister so well and knows my family. So I'm really grateful for Cameron and his willingness to be a guest on the show. So a little bit about Cameron. He is finishing up his PhD in clinical psychology from Brigham Young University and will begin his one-year residency this summer in a university counseling center. He's published a number of scientific articles that focus on group psychotherapy and compassion-focused therapy. He loves teaching people about mental health, which is why he runs a YouTube channel called Self-Help Therapy. And I have personally watched several of his videos on YouTube. They're fantastic. I would highly recommend them to everybody. But he posts therapy-related videos there regularly. He is married and a father to two daughters. And in his free time, he enjoys playing musical instruments and watching improv comedy. But I love the way Cameron talked about shame and some of the things he's learned during his studies in psychology and counseling people. Cameron shares some fabulous information about shame in this episode, including how to address shame and focus on healthy guilt, and he gives some excellent parenting advice in regards to disciplining without shame. I hope you enjoy his wise words as much as I have. Well, good morning, Cameron. I'm so excited for our conversation today, and I just really appreciate you being on the podcast. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. So I want to hear, and I want listeners to hear a little bit about you and what you do professionally and kind of like what led you to your profession. Yeah. So I'm currently a clinical psychology PhD student, uh, finishing up my doctorate degree. Uh, Interestingly enough, I am going to complete my very last final exam right after this interview, which I'm really excited about. Um, So all my coursework will be done. (laughs) I am honored that you're on here. (laughs) It's it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And so uh, all I need to do after that is just defend my dissertation, and then I'll complete my one-year residency. And uh, right now, I actually work as a therapist in a community mental health center, kind of like an internship. And Mm -hmm. I also run a lot of therapy groups uh, in the forensic unit at the Utah State Hospital. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And the, the reason, I guess, you know, to answer your question about what led me to choose this profession is... I I really like 
the the clinical psychology PhD because it really gives me the fle- flexibility to do the three things I love, which is teaching, research, and clinical practice. And with the kind of lives that people live and the way our social climate is these days, I think that these things are more important than ever. And so I, I like just to be able to be a part of that. And it's really rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And so I'm just curious, as an intern working as a um, counselor, are you able to see your own patients, your own clients, or are you kind of working side by side with another counselor? Or how does that look in your training process? Yeah, so I've been given a few different uh, therapy internships throughout my graduate program. And the way it works is that I work under a licensed psychologist and they're my supervisor. So we talk about uh, therapy cases together once a week and, and how things are going. And they kind of oversee everything I do to make sure that I'm not <laughs> doing anything that I shouldn't be. And so there's there's a good collaborative process there. And, and so I work under their license. And so as far as the the patients or the clients who I get to see, that's really just up to who uh, the center I work at or whatever clinic I'm in and who they give me. So, yeah. And that's nice too, I'm sure, to work with somebody that's been doing it for a while. Cause I'm sure, and several different people, cause I'm sure that you're learning different things from every counselor that you work with. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a huge learning process and it's, it's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so today, I'm really excited about the topic that we're covering because I feel like it affects so many people, and I know like it's affected my life pretty dramatically, and that is the topic of shame. Um, and just to start out, I would love to hear like, just give us like a definition. I know we all kind of know what shame is, but sometimes for me, I like to know the actual like definition just to, you know, start out with that and wrap my mind around like what it actually is and what it entails. Sure. And this will, I think this is a great foundation for the rest of the interview because the way I talk about shame is it maybe is a little different than than what people think about and the way that like psychology will conceptualize shame is it, it is a little different than than how maybe the rest of society l- looks at it and so really at its core shame is a social emotion which means it's an emotion we feel because of the presence of other people around us and mm. not necessarily because they caused it even though sometimes it's possible for you know, other people's actions or words to cause us to feel pain, but it's just because they are there that shame will exist. And so it's a, it's a social emotion in that sense. And shame is uncomfortable, right? And it typically yeah. leads to certain actions. And we can place those into two broad categories, which are either submissive actions or aggressive actions. And submiss- mm-hmm. submissive actions look like concealing, hiding, lying, self-harm, isolating, beating ourselves up, all those different things. And aggressive actions, on the other hand, look like beating other people up or (laughs) or bullying, name-calling, insulting, gossiping, basically just doing mean things toward other people. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, what type of action we do usually depends on how powerful we feel in a certain situation. For example, a boss mm. receiving criticism from employees is going to react very differently than an employee receiving criticism from their boss, right? Yeah, yeah. So so the boss will probably more, be more aggressive and have more of a fight response, while the employee is going to be more likely to be submissive, close down, and, and try to hide. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to ask too, like, what is the difference between guilt and shame? Because I feel like sometimes I mix those up. And like, as you're describing what shame is, I think about like my kids and their reactions to me. And, and it's hard. I feel like it's a hard line for me to draw like between, okay, like I I know guilt can be healthy because it can um, help us make good decisions and like feel bad when we make poor decisions. But like, what is the difference and how, like, yeah, what is the difference between guilt and shame? That is the question of the year right there. That That's honestly, I mean, if you want to go there now, we totally can, because that's really what I feel like is how someone can um, really relieve themselves of shame is by yeah. moving toward guilt. Because the, the difference, um, and I'll probably talk about it more to as as we go on in this mm-hmm. but at, at face value the difference between guilt and shame is is the motivation or our actions that follow it or i guess in motivation the what comes before it so with shame it's very self-centered in the sense of like what are people going to think about me what's going to happen to me we're very worried about us and our well-being and and yeah. our status things like that whereas guilt we're worried about the harm that we caused maybe to someone else and we're worried about them and oh man how can i make things right and how can i repair this how can i fix this i need to make amends you know and so it's very other focused yeah that's so interesting cuz i also feel like like i'm trying to think back on my own life and when i've experienced shame and i think the worst and maybe this is guilt that i experienced but the worst state that I've been in is when I felt like I was hurting my family because of my depression Mm -hmm. and my anxiety and, um, everything I was experiencing. And so I feel like it was like focused on other people in that sense, but it was, I know it wasn't healthy because I was convinced that the best thing I could do for them is to, um, complete suicide, you know, to leave. Mm -hmm. And, so that's interesting. It's an interesting definition because like I've experienced that those harmful feelings um thinking you know obviously not true thoughts about my identity and about um about my my experience with depression, anxiety and everything, but like the biggest lie that I faced through that time was that people would be better off without me. And like, Mm -hmm. I thought I was like doing them a service by leaving. (laughs) Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I I think that actually gets to an important point, which is we can feel a mix of guilt and shame. Yeah. And it's usually going to be the, the shame, which is that's, that's exactly kind of what you were explaining is like, well, you kind of beat yourself up. You have all these 
kind of negative thoughts and emotions about yourself thinking, oh, like I'm a burden. Mm. It'd be better if I wasn't here. You know, that's that's a very shame driven response. Whereas guilt would be, okay, what help can I get? How can I improve the situation? How can I still be the person I need to be or oh, want that to makes be? Sense. So shame is like fear driven. Yes. And guilt is like hope slash driven by love. <laughs> like, yes. like a positive, like hopeful, okay, I can change. I want to change. I want to do this. I want to be better in like a hopeful way instead of like a fearful way. Of like exactly okay I, I can't I'm not good enough like those fear-based um, thoughts that right. are like you said like centered on self yes centered okay. on self because of fear right you're exactly because right. of like, fear like yeah it's not the typical fear people might think of like we're afraid of some potential physical danger but this is a fear of being rejected being yeah. judged worrying that people will think negatively of us worrying that People won't love us anymore. It's a fear of what other people might say or think about us. Yeah. Or like in my case, I, I, I felt and sometimes continue to feel just that pressure of not being good enough. Like, Mm. like the fear of like, oh, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for motherhood. I'm not good enough for, you know, these goals because I am, um, I'm broken. I'm weak. I'm all these things. And so therefore, you know, I can't be the person I want to be. Um, yeah, just that place of negativity and self-doubt and I don't know, is that shame? Or is that yes, no, that's, yeah, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. You're exactly okay. right. Yes. It's, it's that kind of self like turning inward yeah. Looking like kind of beating ourselves up or worried about us. And then because of that, just feeling like we kind of want to just curl up into a ball, like just be yeah. so submissive and just almost non-existent, you know? Yeah. 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 So interesting. Um, so moving forward kind of along with that, um, you had told me earlier that you performed your undergraduate research on shame. So what led you to be interested about shame and what was the most helpful that you learned, most helpful tips and things that you've learned from your research? Yeah. So to be honest with you, I actually wasn't initially interested in studying shame directly. I was actually on a research team who was interested, uh, we were at the, interested at the time in studying pornography use. Mm. And uh, it involved interviewing a lot of therapists and ecclesiastical leaders from various religions, trying to pinpoint where, where like the best point of intervention is for people who, who struggle with viewing pornography excessively or, or whatever issue they have with pornography, yeah. right? And so then what actually emerged was this topic of shame and the reason it was so important in the research that we were doing is because we found that shame was the thing that inhibited healing, recovery, mm-hmm. and progress. And so yes. in other words, shame was the key factor in someone first getting help for their problematic pornography use and then going through the entire healing process after that. So shame was like this key factor. And with addiction, it's important to be totally open and honest you need to be honest with yourself and honest with others. And shame 
is a huge barrier standing between someone and that sense of openness, honesty, and authenticity. So why do you think that is? Well, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because someone is afraid of what others might think or say about them if they find out. Yeah. Right. And they're afraid of rejection. Yeah. So because of that, they conceal, they hide, they rationalize, justify. And because of that, they're going to feel alone and hopeless. Mm-hmm. And they're they're going to feel like their most important relationships in life are hanging by a thread and they have to do everything in their power to make sure their weakness or their struggle does not come into the light. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense. Like, well, if people find out, that means that I am not worth love. Like right. kind of I'm unlovable. the statement that people are telling themselves, like, and that's probably a, a statement that commonly feeds shame. Exactly. Is that, that kind of what you've seen? I know that mm-hmm. that's from my personal life and dealing with shame. <laughs> like that is the underlying message. Like yes. if people were to truly see me and all of my brokenness and all of my faults and all of my weaknesses, I would not be loved. Yep. Like, exactly I would not be right. accepted. Yeah. And, and that's, that's terrifying, obviously. It is. So it's, it's very fear driven. Yeah. Yeah. So moving forward, what should someone do if they are personally battling shame? Like if they're listening to us talking about shame and they're like, wow, that's what I'm struggling with right now. Like that is what I'm dealing with. What can they do? Yeah. And to answer that, I like to think that you don't even need to necessarily battle it in order to overcome it. Mm. I would probably rather frame it as like moving away from shame or kind of letting go of shame and leaving it just right where it is, not trying to fight against it. And then Mm. turning and trying to move toward guilt or more of a a guilt-based response. And that might sound a little weird or foreign, right? But what I try to teach people when I meet with them is that we want to move toward guilt because that will help us respond in a healthy way It'll help us get into a place where we can make those repairs and strengthen our relationships, which is really what what's uh, being threatened by shame are, are those relationships we have in our lives. And so guilt is what looks like focusing on others or the harm we may have caused. And it's trying to make things better. It's it's thinking I did a bad thing instead of I am a bad person. I right? am a bad person. Yeah. Like, it's not about your identity. It's about your behavior. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, so how do people do that? Like, like (laughs) what do you have? I mean, I'm sure everybody is different, but in what you've done with shame and working with people around shame, have, have you seen like specific ways that people do that or like how they move through that process of moving away from shame and towards guilt? Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to navigate. Um, what's cool is that there are a lot of great therapies and resources out there that, that help people with this. Um, it's, it's a lot of introspection and work with yourself where you can come to a place to realize. And, and for a lot of people, they, they explain it as a breaking point where they say, okay, I, I cannot be in this web of lies any longer, or I can't be in the darkness here any longer. I have to, I have to just come out with whatever it is that's, that's bothering me or whatever I've done or whatever I'm thinking about. And 
And once they're able to reveal that and they see, okay, you know what? People didn't react the way that I was afraid of. Then that's where a lot of the healing can start. And then a lot of times people around them build them up, they support them and they want, they want them to succeed and overcome this shame. And so they help them any way possible to, to go through that process. And then the fact that yeah. And the fact that people are helping kind of goes against the lies of shame. Like, Oh, you know, like people accept me, people love me, even though they know this terrible thing about me, maybe that lie that I was telling myself that I'm broken and not worth love is wrong. Exactly. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Um, I know from like my personal experience with shame, I feel like, gosh, there's so many like layers to it. Like there was, (laughs) like it wasn't like a simple, okay, I'm going to turn away from shame. I'm going to turn towards guilt. Like I think first I had to realize I was even battling shame. Oh yeah. Like it kind of hides there and I don't know, like it, when I was struggling with it, just kind of felt like it felt so true. Those lies. I talk about like depression's lies. And I think a lot of them are built around shame. Um, same with addiction, you know, any kind of mental illness can be built around shame and just the idea of what I'm experiencing is who I am. And what I'm experiencing is so terrible. So who I am must be so terrible. And I can't let people see that Mm. because like they won't accept me. And I think it's for me, I'm, I'm just trying to think like, how, how have I been able to battle that shame? I feel like it was so, so vitally important to separate my identity from my experience and to realize like, I am not depression. I am not anxiety. I am not fear because I would write. I remember like writing down my thoughts when I was in a negative place and, and they were like, well, I'm experiencing this anxiety. Like I'm so terrible. I bring everybody down. I'm so anxious. I'm so miserable. Like people don't want to be around me. I'm hurting people. I'm hurting my family because of who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's such like a final complete statement. Um, like there's not a lot of hope or like change that can come from that kind of mindset. Like if you view yourself as your behavior, as broken, as anxiety, as depression, as, you know, whatever addiction, as whatever you're going through and you attach your identity to that, that becomes something that like. I don't know. It felt to me like it was unchangeable. Like, okay, mm. I'm inherently broken. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, there's something completely wrong with my identity. And so that's there's not a lot of room for hope and change in that, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's scary for people when they receive a diagnosis or they they they're struggling with a certain thing and they they can't pinpoint what it is and it becomes like a part of who they are in their minds. Um, it becomes, it's really hard to move through that. So I think like a huge piece of it for me to recover was to separate my identity from my experience 
You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. separate who I was from the psychosis, the depression, the anxiety, that all the negative things I was experiencing and realizing like, okay, those things, that was an experience. And this is, you know, I am, I am lovable and I am, my identity doesn't have to be defined by these things. Yeah. I think that that was huge. And Cameron, I know that you knew my sister personally, Mm -hmm. um, Kimber, and I love talking to people that knew her because (laughs) I don't know, there's just that connection of like, oh yes, like you knew the incredible Mm -hmm. person that she was. And, and I love having conversations with people that knew her. It's just such a gift to me. But in her, I'm going to get really personal and vulnerable here, but like in her, I think it, it brings across a really important, um, important statement for people. And that's just, I know that she struggled with shame. I know that she struggled with this, like the very thing that I'm explaining because in her suicide note, it said, I don't want to battle this for 80 years. I don't want to be this person for 80 years. I don't want to be defined by this my whole life and have this lifelong terrible struggle and look back and it's all for what, you know? And I think that that is one of the main things that people struggle with is the idea that they can't get better because they are inherently broken Mm. and that something is wrong with who they are. And I just, it breaks my heart. Like I wish that I could go back and convince my sister. I tried. I tried. We had several conversations where I tried to tell her you are so much more than your diagnosis. You, you know, you are positive and upbeat and loving and so much light and creativity and all these amazing things. You're so much more than that diagnosis. But it was that idea that she was her diagnosis, that she was this person that would struggle, um, and have all these issues her whole life. And and I feel like it is hard. Like with diagnosis, obviously, there's things that you might struggle off and on with. Um, you know, we all have our own struggles and they all look different. But I feel through my healing journey and what I wish I could have given my sister is that very idea and that very truth that you are not your diagnosis, that she, her identity was separate from that. Yes, it's something that she struggled with, but I, to me, it's as wrong as saying somebody with diabetes, like that defines them. And that's mm-hmm. not true. You know, there's so much more than their diabetes. Their diabetes makes it so that they have to make certain changes in their life. Like they have to do things that, you know, somebody else that doesn't have diabetes doesn't have to do, but does it define them and their life and their life's trajectory? It doesn't define it. You know, they just have to adapt around it. And that's how I view mental illness too. Like it just, it doesn't define who you are. Um, and it's not, 
doesn't have to be this forever miserable thing when you're in the midst of it. It feels miserable and awful and and hopeless, but that is that is not doesn't have to be your life's trajectory. It doesn't have to be your forever reality, you know? Oh yeah. It's just something that has affected your life that you can find the tools to to get through it and to manage it and to find hope and to find answers. Um, so I just, I felt that that was important to bring up, especially with you, Cameron, cause you know, my sister, <laughs> but just to kind of drive that point home, like that's how I felt when I was suicidal, you know, like I, I'm broken. I'm completely like, this is going to be forever. I'm going to forever hurt my family. I'm going to forever struggle with this. Mm these thoughts and these feelings and there's no getting better. And I think that that, that's how many people might feel when they're feeling suicidal is like just that feeling, that overwhelming feeling of shame of this is who I am. This defines me. This defines my future. And because of that, there's no hope. I'm not lovable. I don't deserve a good life or I'm not going to have a good life. And so the best way out is choosing death choosing to end it. And I just, yeah, really want to drive that point home. Like that is not reality. Um, there is hope. There's always hope. There's tools people can utilize to change and it's a process and it's hard, but it's worth every single step. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Man, I was not prepared for that, so I'm trying to I'm trying my best over here to keep it together. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's good. I think that's extremely important to to bring up too. And I'm just in just swimming in my thoughts right now. And and something that popped up for me as you were speaking is when I meet with people, a lot of times I hear these statements where they're really worried and they say, "Oh, I." I just sound crazy. I know I sound crazy to you. I'm, I'm crazy. And I always stop them right there. And I say, whoa, whoa, you're not crazy. You're in crazy circumstances. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Like we, you're here and we're going to work through it and it's going to be okay in the end. And I don't want you to attach yourself to this because yeah. this is not you, like you are you and that's perfect. And this is just something in your environment or it's something that's happening to you or something that you're experiencing and that's different. That's separate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in our culture, society, I mean, I feel like our culture is straying away from this, which is so good. But the culture of like perfectionism of like, well, in some ways it's straying away in other ways it's not. <laughs> but in that culture of perfectionism, it's like, yeah, you show your your smile, you show you sh- your you show your laugh, you be happy, like you be this happy, bubbly, perfect person all the time. And what happens when you feel afraid? What happens when you feel sad? What happens when you feel angry? Like you have to hide that part of yourself. Like those emotions are not okay, you know? And when we have this culture of you just show the world that perfect mask and everything else you need to hide and put under a rug and you Mm -hmm. have to be this perfect person. Like I know for me and my struggle with perfectionism, like that was very shameful. Um, I shamed those emotions. I was like, oh, I'm feeling angry towards someone. That's not okay. I can't feel that. I got to turn off those feelings. I know in my family, um, we've 
we've mostly like our, my siblings and I have struggled with that. Mm -hmm. And I think it does stem from that culture of perfectionism of, yes, these emotions are okay, but these other ones, they can't be felt. They need to be hidden. They need to be, you know, like they're not okay. You're, it's not okay to feel those emotions. So do you think that that, that kind of like culture plays a huge role in, in people's life as far as like, why somebody would feel shame or is there something that you've seen in your studies and um working with people where you've seen like okay this is a common a common theme of why people experience shame oh for sure and it's it's hard because that kind of rhetoric doesn't give us much room to be human yeah we have so many different reactions and things that are are way beyond our control, especially emotional reactions. And when we judge those in a negative way and say, how like I'm such a horrible person for getting angry, you know, and then that's going to instantly induce a shame based response. And depending on what circumstance we're in, that's, it's going to be really harmful. Right. And so it's, it really is damaging to, to have that, pounded in our heads that you know we have to be a certain way and anything that deviates from that is is wrong or uh like just <laughs> shouldn't be there right then we yeah. feel we feel broken or we feel like something's wrong with us when we do have those very normal and human reactions and that's it's okay to have those reactions and that's what I try to tell people I meet with is that I would I would be worried if you didn't feel worried or angry or Mm -hmm. frantic or whatever the emotion might be. And I say, that's okay. And then the great part is that we can choose how we're going to respond to that. Like we can then choose our actions and our our behavior after that, but we cannot really choose or control the fact that it, it comes there automatically and that's okay. Yeah. Do you have like tips for people who are in that shameful mindset of like, how do you, how do you make that switch? You know, like if you're feeling, so you feel the emotion and that's okay. But obviously if, if you're feeling a lot of anger, it's not okay to punch somebody in the face, you know, <laughs> like, Unfortunately how, not, yeah. yeah, like how do you stop yourself and move towards a healthy behavior when you feel those emotions? Yeah. Uh, there's a, huge wealth of information regarding like behavioral regulation strategies. Uh, and, and I could get into a lot of those, but I think one that comes to my mind that I think, especially with shame is going to help tremendously is, is to foster a sense of compassion for yourself mm-hmm. and realizing. And one thing that I love, this is probably my favorite thing to say in therapy and when people really get it, I can tell. And and a lot of healing and growth happens. And that is this mantra that I love to share with people. And that is, it's my responsibility, but it's not my fault. Some people kind of get a little uncomfortable and they're thinking, oh, it's it's my responsibility. Like that's kind of scary, but it's it's actually empowering. That's That's where we're able to choose like, okay, it's not my fault that I'm angry because I, I have a biology that I didn't choose. I have a brain I didn't choose. I'm in circumstances that maybe I didn't choose. And, and so it's not my fault, but 
with my portion of the responsibility, I can now choose what I do with that anger. Yeah. And and that's really empowering for people. And just to separate the two where instead of putting all the blame, shame and faults on them, they're thinking, okay, it's not my fault because really it's not, it's not my yeah. fault. It's my responsibility. And then you can then shift into a, a healthier place to maybe do some behavior regulation strategies or be able to be mindful for a minute and think, okay, how do I really want to respond in this situation? Right. But then really the important thing, and if everybody listening can do this, then, then the world would be a better place. And that is just remembering that it's not our fault. Yeah. Do you feel like being able to even state your emotions and like having that emotional, emotional awareness, do you feel like that helps people too? Absolutely. And to me, that makes sense that that would be like the first step is recognizing, okay, I'm feeling right now, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling upset, like being able to increase that emotional awareness and vocabulary to be able to even like understand what you're feeling. Right. And why? Oh, yeah. And I think you're right because the reason maybe men are notorious for <laughs> not doing that is because when we when we identify it or we we're aware of it then that's like admitting that it exists right and that's scary yeah. for a lot of people and yeah. it, a lot of society right yeah a lot of society likes uh for men to believe that they're not allowed to feel any emotions right and so mm -hmm. that's that's where we get that tricky part but something that i do with clients and maybe you'll find this helpful for yourself too is is when it does get hard to put these emotions under some broad label that we, you know, because our language is so uh, restricting. Limited. Sometimes. Right. Yes. Limited. That's <laughs> yeah. a perfect way to say it. And what I'd like to do with people who I meet with is we go through these four steps of emotion identification. And it's not actually like saying, okay, is this anger? Is this anxiety? X, Y, Z. But we first say, okay, where is it in my body? Do I feel it in my chest, in my head, in the pit of my stomach, throughout my whole body, wherever it might be, right? So we identify where it is in, in the body. That's the first step. And then I tell them, okay, if we had a, a magical x-ray machine that could go over your body and we could see this emotion in your chest or wherever they say it is, what shape would it be? Like what, what would, what would the shape be? And you, I, I'm often surprised at what people come up with because they're, they're able to come up with something and, and it perfectly describes their experience. And it's something that maybe I haven't experienced before. Yeah. Um, some people, you know, say something as simple as like, oh, it's a triangle. And then others have like this really like beautiful explanation of what the shape of this emotion is. Which then leads us into step three, which is we say, okay, what what color is it, right? We try to just like help them almost visualize it so that it's it's something more tangible than just like this yeah. overwhelming, huge emotion that they're feeling, right? So they give it a color. And then the last step is we give it a name, not necessarily a name like anger or worry, but it can be a name like Jimmy or like I, I mm -hmm. come, people come up with some really interesting names and... And from there, it's a lot easier for them to identify it. And they, they're able to notice and observe when it's there a lot easier because they, you know, they, they, it's, it's tangible at that point. Like they're like, okay, there's yeah. that red triangle that's in my chest. 
that I've named Billy, you know, and then they're like, okay, well now I know that, that that's here. And I know now what I need to do to move past it or to satiate it or whatever it might be. Well, and that's such an amazing tool to help people steer away from shame because by personifying those emotions, it, it's no longer a part of who you are, right? It's no longer Kristen and her fear and anxiety and depression. It's Kristen being affected by, you know, Jimmy, the (laughs) red triangle. There you go. Exactly. It's separating that identity from emotion. And yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Cause if we're, if we're the one observing it, it can't be us because we can't be something and observe it at the same time, really. So it's also a lot less threatening because all of a sudden that big, scary emotion you're feeling is now a triangle in your mind. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) What a cool tool. Yeah. I, I read something yesterday, actually, that kind of rang true to me and it just, I, it keeps coming to mind throughout this conversation, but Mm -hmm. it was just this statement that was like, instead of saying, um, I feel this way, but say, I feel this way because, Mm -hmm. so I, I feel angry, but I'm going to get better. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop I'm going to do this to distract myself or whatever. Like, I feel angry, but I'm going to, you know. Yeah. So instead of saying that, say, I feel angry because this and this and this. Hmm. And just giving yourself that va- that validation yeah. and then the freedom to feel. The freedom to feel that way, that that's okay, that there's no shame in feeling angry. It's a part of being human, like you said. And that kind of rang true to me. Like, how often do I say oh, I'm feeling so mad at my kids, but I'm going to go off and do this to make myself feel better. Like just letting yourself sit in that emotion for a minute and being okay with it. And then you can go on to the, but after you've realized like, okay, I'm feeling angry because my kids did this and this and this, and that's a valid emotion. I'm okay to feel angry, but I I can react in this other way that's healthier. Instead of doing what I automatically want to do and scream in their faces, like, you know, so I love that. I feel like it having that kind of mindset, one, allows for negative emotions and also allows you to explore why you're feeling the way that you feel, you know, that there's reasons for those emotions and they're okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so kind of. Moving along that line, talking about parenting, I feel like there's that's such a big topic. We could honestly probably do like a whole other episode just on parenting, but (laughs) but parenting and shame, I feel like is huge. And here's what I struggle with as a mom. Again, I'm gonna be vulnerable here. Okay, but I I feel like I have so many people and so many like I don't know resources like telling me how terrible shame is and I acknowledge that but I have a hard time knowing how to discipline like how do I discipline without shame and sometimes I feel like I don't discipline at all because I'm so worried I'm gonna shame so I'm like well maybe I'll just allow this but I know that that's not healthy like it's not healthy to allow negative behavior that's gonna not be healthy for my family so it's like how I know that's a loaded question, but 
Do you have any insight on how you can parent without shaming your kids? How do you discipline effectively? Just that is the question of my life as a young mom right now. (laughs) I know. And if I had the perfect answer, I'd be a millionaire by now. So I I do have some insight, though, that may be helpful. It's like two main points that I'll share. And the first is to watch the language that we use, Um, Mm -hmm. help them see that a mistake they made doesn't have anything to do with their worth as a person or your love for them, but mm-hmm. that um, that that's kind of part of life. So one thing, because I have a three year old, and uh, so I always I didn't catch. Know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah. know you, Daddy. Yeah, uh, yeah, oh. three year old and a one year old, so it's a it's a oh, full house. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank you. Uh, I didn't do much, but thank you. Um, so the the thing that I always try to watch out is the words I use, and things even as simple as like our three year old will be eating dinner, and instead of "You're a mess," I'll, it's it's better to say something like "Oh, you made a mess," right? And yeah. so there's that's just kind of a simple example right off the top of my head. Or another one is, oh, you're not being a good listener versus you're not listening very well right now, right? Like mm-hmm. you're you're taking away the identity of the mistake or I guess mm-hmm. taking away the chance for them to identify with the mistake, right? Yeah. And so, so watching the language is right off the bat something that will help. And then another thing is that kids will feel shame and they'll try to conceal maybe mistakes they've made or struggles that they're having, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you find out that they have concealed something or lied or tried to hide something, try to show compassion for them. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, I mean, they were, they are concealing because they feel shame, right? They they feel shame because they are worried of how you might react. Mm -hmm. So if you react very poorly, then you're only reinforcing their desire to hide things. And, yeah. and then they're going to try to do better the next time. They're going to try to lie better or hide better because you did exactly what they were afraid of, right? Yeah. And imagine how powerful it would be if you said something like, I know how sad you are about this mistake and I know you're probably very worried that I'm going to be mad at you for it. It's okay to feel that way and I want to help you fix it. How can we make this situation better? just kind of going there and just saying, Hey, I know that you're, you're probably worried that, you know, I would be really mad at you and that's, that's okay to feel that way. And it's, I mean, it's not the case. I want to help you. Like I'm, I'm so happy that we can work on this together, you know, making it more of a positive experience, which I know is, is way easier said than done, especially when you're like in the heat of the moment. Right. But I want to just like, I have that little segment of what you said just now and play it for myself every morning when there I wake up. And like, this is how I'm going to parent today. Like, I'm going to say this when this happens. That's really, really good wisdom. <laughs> yeah, just have it ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> that's so good. But like you said, it is it is hard in the moment. And I don't know, I, I just worry so much that I'm going to like screw up my kids' lives. <laughs> So, like every situation I tend to, I'm an analyzer and I'm like, do Mm. I, am I shaming right now? Like, am I, or am I, I don't know. And it's probably good to be self-aware, but (laughs) I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm a little too (laughs) self-aware, but I love how you said that to just like drive home, um, the fact that 
like what we've been talking about. You are not your emotion. You are not, you know, like this doesn't define you mm-hmm. and to separate who they are versus their behavior and what has happened. And yeah, yeah that, and I love the, I love assuming, assuming the best, like how you said, I know you're feeling, you're probably feeling angry or you might be feeling disappointed um, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, just assuming the best from them. Like, oh, you probably feel bad about what you did. And, you know, I, I know that you, you want to do right by me or I don't know that's probably not a good statement to say (laughs) I I think I think no I I see what you're saying you're just saying something along lines of I know that you know you're probably worried about this or you're angry and you're upset and that's okay and I know that this isn't something that you like to feel and I'm sure that you'd like to feel happy and feel good again so let's let's make that happen like how can I help you how can we fix this yeah that (laughs) (laughs) that is what i was trying to say (laughs) i figured that's i just filled in the gaps you're good (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) oh yes any other parenting advice (laughs) (laughs) oh man i i i love working with parents and and kids it's it's rewarding and yeah there's there's a lot of good stuff that can happen there Mm mm-hmm I think maybe one other tip that's really short is just to praise them when they do open up to you about like maybe a mistake they made or an emotion that they're feeling. Tell them how glad you are that they told you and then be really collaborative on how you can help them like make the situation better or how you can proceed from there. But kids thrive off of praise, like something that as a psychologist, yeah, yeah, exactly. What we drive home with parents is that behavior that is praised is going is more likely to happen again, right? So yeah. you praise things that you want and ignore behavior that you don't want. And so praising mm-hmm. your children when they do open up and when they are kind of in that vulnerable state where you can see that they're trying to let go of shame and maybe move toward guilt, if you just praise the heck out of it, then that's going to help guide them into doing that more frequently. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've wondered that. Like, is... When I see negative behavior, do I ignore it or do I try and understand it better and talk about it and help them understand it better? Like what is what is the best thing to do there? And I I don't know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? <laughs> uh, it, it depends a lot on what the behavior is. Like if it's them whining about something over and over that you've already talked about, then yeah. that's a great time to ignore, right? <laughs> uh, but if it's something where they're like, you know, either in like endangering themselves or or a sibling or someone else, right? Then that's a good time to kind of sit down and and have a calm discussion about it when you're able to, right? Yeah. And then sometimes I, I we do is we get so either fed up with our kids or we get just so heated about something that they're doing, and a lot of times it has to do with defiance. And what I found helpful is that I just need to separate separate myself from them for just a minute right just so that we can all calm down so that there's not an explosion right and so sometimes yes exactly my my three-year-old knows this is sometimes when it just reaches that breaking point i will like gently pick her up and i'll place her in her room or in sometimes we'll even put her in her baby sister's crib right just to like 
you stay there just for a minute. Right. And I won't even say a word like that's that's when she kind of knows is that I don't say anything because I know if I do say something, it's probably not going to be very helpful. Yeah. Um, and and I just set a timer for about two or three minutes. Right. And that's plenty of time for me to like collect my thoughts and give me a chance to really think about, OK, how am I going to approach this? Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'm able to approach her very calmly and I can say, hey, you know what? Uh, it's it's really hard when you hit your little sister when you know she's pl- trying to play with your toys. We we I know that you're angry and that's OK. And I'm wondering if there's something else that we can do next time to to help it so that you don't have to hit her. But then you you still feel OK about about what she's doing, you know, something like that. And and maybe I'm eating my own words now because now she just yells, come get come get Violet. That's her little sister's name. Come get her, come get her, you know, as she's like trying to play with her toys and, and it's better than her hitting her, but now we yeah. have to step in all the time and we're kind of getting into that. So maybe it's not a perfect formula, but I feel like it's better than better. alternative. Yes. Better solution for sure. Maybe put that's, a little more work on you, but. And I think that's like the slogan for, for parenting is there's no perfect solution, but obviously there's, yeah. there's some that are better than others. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love the reason earlier why I said I feel like our culture is getting a little better about this is I do feel like there's a lot of information out there on like how to talk to your kids about emotion and Mm -hmm. that every emotion is okay. Like I've read so many books to my daughter about like, this is how I feel and, and I feel angry and this is what anger looks like. And I just to kind of help increase their vocabulary and awareness around their emotions. Yes. Yes, that's huge. So I'm grateful that there's those resources out there for parents. <laughs> Absolutely. And then hopefully that doesn't stop at childhood, you know, like it goes through adulthood of, okay, I'm feeling this way and that's okay. That's yep. the hope. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fantastic. And you've shared some wonderful, wonderful insights and tips with listeners. I so appreciate your time. Um. Before we close, is there anything else that you wanted to say or you wanted to cover or any, any final, any final words? Any final <laughs> words. Um, I, I think we talked about a lot of great things and I really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, really, it's just, it's that it's, it's okay. And then if people can walk away, being able to think to themselves in the future, you know, it's, it's my responsibility, but it's not my fault. And then being able to to make those positive changes or, or at least doing things in their life that that's going to promote health and well-being, then that's that's all I could ever ask for. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, so with our final question, mm-hmm. what does lighting the shadows mean to you? Yeah, I see lighting the shadows as an excellent way to illustrate the process of letting go of shame and moving away from it. Like I, I see it lighting the shadows as like a perfect illustration of, of shame uh, yeah. because shame thrives in darkness and yeah. because it, it, as long as it remains hidden and concealed, it's thriving. Right. And so when we mm-hmm. bring light into those shadows, maybe that looks like compassion for ourselves or somebody being compassionate toward us. We are essentially you know, opening up about them and allowing others to see what it is that's being hidden. And from that point on, that's like the turning point. That's when we can make the necessary 
reparations or that's when we can then strengthen our relationships. And so bringing light into those places of darkness is really, that's, that's the turning point. Like that's what we need to do. That's beautiful. Thank you. I so appreciate your time and your wisdom and everything that you shared with me and listeners. So thank you, Cameron. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Lighting the Shadows. I hope you felt inspired to keep shining your light and be the unique person that you are, a person worth love, peace, joy, and life. I hope today's material has been helpful for you in some way. If you have any questions or comments, or if you would like to be a guest speaker, you can contact me through my website, lightingtheshadows.org. Have a wonderful week.